Well, it's been a long time since we've been in Mark, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 13. We're going to start today, and I had the the, uh, great ambitions of getting weeks ahead in my lessons as Drew filled in for three weeks, and then we had two weeks with no Sunday school, but um, I didn't get too far with that, so... um, as we start to look at Mark, you know, there, uh, the scene changes quite a bit here. But I think since it's been so long since we met, you know, just a real quick recap. If you, you know, just turn back a page or so in your Bible, I'm sure, you know, the what we have was the, this is a, I have to keep reminding myself of this. And, and I remember when years ago when Shane preached through Luke, um, this kind of what I'm getting ready to say really came to light to me then of all this stuff that happened and appeared to be such rapid fire succession. You know, this is really just a couple of days here, right, that is that has transpired. And and um, as we read, or at least for me, as I read these, you know, if I don't really stop and think about it, it, it seems like, you know, I, I lose focus of the fact that, you know, we're still in the same day, you know, and the physical component of, of our Savior had to really be taxing at, at these points, you know, that he would be teaching all day long. You know, those of you that are teachers, you could you know what that's like, right, to just all day long. And I guess your little students could be kind of like the Pharisees, you know, throwing stuff at you <laughs> and whatnot. But maybe you got a little more control. But anyway, you know, you remember back chapter 11, he comes into the into the city for the first time, and and they um, uh, he goes into the temple, we see, but he doesn't start the cleansing of the temple until the next day, chapter 11, verse 14. Um, uh, well, that's when he, he cursed the tree, but you, you remember he goes in, he just kind of surveys it and looks around, you know, probably got his thoughts together that evening to, to uh, decide what he was going to do the next day when he went in there, and then he goes back the next day, and he he actually cleanses the temple. And if you remember, he upset the commerce that was going on there. And not all commentators agree with what I'm getting ready to say, but I, this is the position I took. He actually even completely stopped their their worship economy, if you will, you know, because he upset the commerce, which all revolved around what they were going to be doing for worship, right? And so if they didn't have animals for their sacrifices because he turned everything upside down, then that kind of stopped the worship as well. And so a lot of really big things happened there. And, and uh, you know, they go on in chapter 12 in particular, you talk about a long, long day of teaching. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. You know, the last thing he taught there was the widow's offering as she gave, and he brought their attention to that. So, a lot happened there, and, and I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, where we're at. And, you know, if we hadn't taken a break, it'd be much fresher to us. But this is a, a lot culminated inside the court of the Gentiles there. So it's, it's, I think it's really, really important. I had to reel my thoughts in when I studied this chapter because I wanted to chase 50,000 rabbit trails, and they're there. And I just tried to discipline myself to keep that from happening. So the main purpose of, of the Olivet Discourse, as this passage is called, is not to satisfy curiosity about the future. 
but rather to give practical advice for Jesus' disciples and for us, the church, today. So he's preparing his disciples and us to live and witness in a hostile world. That's what's going on here, right? So the occasion was announced in the coming of the destruction of the temple in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, and then the, the consequent uh, question by the disciples in verses 3 and 4, and then what's called the discourse itself in verses 5 through 37 was his reply to their question. So here on the, this is the last day of his public ministry, and we see in chapter 12 in verse 43 that he, he has stopped teaching publicly and now he's speaking directly to his disciples. And in this, this portion is also recorded in Matthew uh, chapter 24 and 25 and in Luke chapter 21. And in these, he gives us a picture of history to come. History to come. So we would call that what? You could call it predictive, but what's the Bible word we use for that? Prophecy, prophecy prophetic, you know, history to come. And, and that's, that's what he's looking at. So to be sure, keep this in your mind, because just picture yourself being there, hearing him teach this. To be absolutely sure, these guys would have been in, in, in utter shock with the words that are getting ready to come out of his mouth. This would have rocked their world you know and because why they're anticipating the kingdom right and after all the king has arrived they all know that they attest to that they're convinced that jesus is the son of god that he's the messiah and that he's the one that's going to establish his kingdom they fully believe that that they believe that they're about to experience the establishment of the glorious kingdom he just shut down the whole system Certainly now is the time this is going to all roll out, right? They're, they're familiar with Isaiah chapter 9, that the government will be on his shoulders. They'll literally take, he, that they were fully convinced that he would literally take over and rule not only Israel, but the entire world. They're familiar with the Old Testament. The Messiah is to come. He's to establish his kingdom, destroy the enemies of God, destroy all the enemies of Israel, restore the glory of Jerusalem, gather the Jews into the land, set up his kingdom there, and from that vantage point, rule the world. That's what these guys were thinking. And then Israel, of course, would be the favored nation on the planet. Righteousness, peace, and knowing that the truth would fill the earth in a life uh, the way that it was, the persecution and the wickedness of the system that was set up would be no more and that their minds are set on that clearly they believe john the baptist this is the messiah i mean it was validated by miracles and truth teaching i mean he entered jerusalem a few days before with the appropriate appropriate messianic welcome in chapter 11 verses 9 and 10 says and those who went before and those who followed were shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. The scene is set in their minds that the, this is it, guys. We're getting ready to have our kingdom and our king ruling. As far as they were concerned, everything was absolutely on schedule. Then John MacArthur says about this, and then somebody hit the pause button. 
and we're still in the pause mode today. What seemed imminent at that time came to a screeching halt. So with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 13. Verse 1 says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, as I said, his public ministry is ended. His um, entry into the temple that Tuesday morning was mentioned in, in 1127. Now he's leaving the temple for the last time. And we're not sure which of the disciples called Jesus' attention to the stones there, but he, he acted as a spokesman, as they often did. You know, one guy would speak up for the whole group, and he directed Jesus' attention again back to that magnificent building, as we looked at in great detail months ago. And he says there, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. And, you know... I, the scripture doesn't say anything about this, but I think, you know, just think in your mind. If they think that, you know, this is getting ready to be it, we're going to be ruling with you from here. You know, this is going to be our powerhouse. You know, we're getting ready to, I mean, I, I kind of almost think there's a little bit of that underlying there in their minds, you know, that this is going to be ours and we can tell those guys what to do. And, you know, there, there wasn't any uh, hyperbole in this. You know, this was a massive structure, as we've looked at before. Uh, I mean, it was one of the wonders of the Roman world. It, it, it took 46 years to build the thing, right? And they're just now coming to completion with it. And, and um, I thought about how big this area really was and, and just what it must have looked like from a distance. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But I saw a building not like that, but size-wise one time years ago um, in Bucharest, Romania, there's the People's Palace that, um, oh, what was the guy's name? Uh, the communist leader? Ceausescu. He, he He sent the entire nation of Romania into deep poverty to get the money to build this thing, right? 
And, of course, he was overthrown before it was finished. The communist thing was turned upside down, but they finished it. So I'm standing, oh, I don't know, maybe a half a mile, maybe a mile away from this thing, and I've got a 35-millimeter camera with a 50-millimeter lens. I don't have a wide angle, but, you know, that far away, 50-millimeter is kind of the standard lens, right? And I can't get the whole building in, you know. That's big, and you, you know, today we stand there and we look at a building like that and we're awed. You know, like, look at the size of this thing. And, of course, the reports and everything, the articles on it say it's bigger underground than it is above ground. And you're just like, wow. You know, so I think that kind of a wow factor would be anybody that's looking at this temple. That, that's kind of what they see, right? This thing is huge. And from a distance, we're told historically that it looked like a mountain of gold because the nine massive gates and much of its exterior was plated with gold and silver. You know, we kind of wow when you come around the Grady Curve downtown and see the dome there, you know, and just that one little dome that's covered with gold. Pretty neat, you know, to think about this thing. Josephus wrote this on it. Listen to this. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either the mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays. You couldn't even look at the thing when the sun's beaming off of it. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, that's 67 and a half feet, five cubits in height, that's seven and a half feet, and six in breadth, that's nine feet. These foundation stones were absolutely breathtaking. You ever go up to Tate, Georgia? You know, we rode through there a couple of weekends ago just on a country afternoon drive. You know, they got all that marble up there. It is neat looking stuff. That elementary school there is solid marble. And it's a cool-looking building with all that white. Well, think of stones this size made out of marble. I wonder if they got it from North Georgia. But it would be interesting to see where the marble in that part of the world comes from. But So anyway, Jesus replies after they bring all this out, do you see these great buildings? And they're thinking, well, duh, there it is. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They had to have been absolutely flabbergasted at this point. No way. 46 years to build, it's too big for anything to ever be able to destroy it and tear it down. That just is an absolute impossibility. But we know, looking back through history now, that his words were tragically true. And in AD 70, God... This is the important part for us to remember through all this. God brought to Jerusalem a guy named Titus Vespasian leading the Roman army. As a human instrument of his divine wrath, the Romans, they lit massive fires and basically they decimated the entire temple. The intense heat caused stones to turn to almost powderish crumble. What he said would happen, it happened. Now, does a statement like God used a human instrument to bring forth his divine wrath, does that bother you at all? What do you think? A human instrument. 
bringing forth. Yeah. Yeah. You tie that together with the sermon from last Sunday, Romans eight twenty eight. Mm-hmm. God uses a lot of despicable means to achieve His purpose. Sure. But you know, in do you? Let me ask you: Do you personally have to be careful how you say that to people you know? I mean, we all believe that. We hear it taught. We read books of commonality here in our church, and we all we're there, right? But what about friends and neighbors, family members? Do you have to temper that at all? I said it to my mom the other day. She's a um, she's a uh, staunch Roman Catholic, um, and uh, but she believes she believes that you know. So we had a good discussion, but we were talking about another relative that maybe not so much. You know, do you have to temp- How do you temper that if you do, or do you just say it to people you know if you get on that topic? You remember when um, Jerry Falwell used to get himself in trouble? You know, sometimes needed to be, but you know what I mean? He didn't temper it much. Um, I, you know, I just, we, we got to keep in mind, I guess what I'm, the point I'm getting at is we got to keep in mind that God is the one that, that works all this stuff out, right? And Jesus, God, you know, said this was going to happen, and so the means that he used was a human, but... So by the time this was over, just a massive uh, mess. The footings was about all that was left of the temple. You know, Jesus predicted that this was going to happen, and it happened under the judgment of God. So being riveted, keep that in your mind. Now being riveted by this prediction, this prophecy, the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and this time, interestingly, Andrew, Peter's brother, is with them. Uh, don't really know why, but typically he w- he was with the 12, of course, but he wasn't typically part of that inner circle, but this time he is. And they they have an audience with Jesus, and, and they're, they've left, remember, and they're on their way back to Bethany, which takes them up to the, the Mount of Olives, and that, that's 150 feet above Jerusalem, which uh, afforded a dramatic view of the temple. You know, it's we all love going on top of mountains, don't we, and looking down, and you can see... You know, you got the vantage point there. And so having heard the prophecy of the destruction, they were eager to learn more about it. So in verse 3, it says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, we're not sure at this point if the other disciples were close by to hear the question one commentator, and I, I kind of like this idea, said that the word privately is taken best to mean excluding everybody but the 12. The other 12 were there. That just these four were a little bit closer to him, perhaps. And uh, the parallel passage in Matthew, uh, he gives a fuller question there. Matthew 24, 3 says, He sat on the Mount of Olives, as, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? See the difference there? Matthew shows us that their question was bigger than just the ruin of the temple. You know, maybe they're starting to think a little bit now of, um, hey, uh, maybe we're not going to take this thing over right away. So when are you coming? You know, they throw that kind of in there in the Matthew passage. 
So they, they wanted to know the end of the present age as well. So keep in mind that disciples like other first century Jews envisioned a single coming of the Messiah, a single coming. But God intended that the Messiah would come twice, right? In Isaiah, we read of the suffering servant. That's the first time he comes, Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. But then he comes again as a conquering king in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 19, with an extended period of time lapsing between those two comings. So in order to help them understand that reality, Jesus gave them a detailed reply to their question. And this reply is what we call the Olivet Discourse, right? And it's the longest reply to any question that anybody ever asked Jesus on earth that he starts to unfold the answer. He gave more words to the answer to that question than any other. So in answer to the question, he delineated some specific birth pains that would precede his return. Some specific things that would have to happen first. So in verse 5, he starts, and Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So the first thing he tells them then is that relentless deception by frauds is coming, right? You need to be prepared for that. Relentless deception is coming. The word see there is interesting. It means more than merely to look at. Um, it carries the sense of beware, or take heed, right? So he's really saying, be careful, take heed, watch out. Many are coming. And um, he repeats it in verses 22 and 23. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. That be on guard is the same thing. See, watch, be careful, pay attention. Um, oh, never mind. I won't go there. <laughs> they were to watch out for false teachers so they wouldn't be misled. Second Peter, he says the same thing in chapter two, verses one through three. It says, "But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality." And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. You know, this is Jesus saying, watch out. Beware. These guys are coming. So, I mean, we know certainly, right, that we've seen that, haven't we? Many false teachers, false prophets throughout history Well, what he's saying is those numbers are going to increase as we get near the end. They're going to be more and more, and they're going to be more frequent as we come. The birth pains start, you know, there's a tiny infant over here. Would you like to tell us how that goes? (laughs) Right? They start. But what's one thing for certain? Once they start, they continue until, right, we, uh, we have the, the birth, and that, that's, keep that mindset going. So I looked up a couple today. You know, these, these guys are just foreshadows of the ultimate false guy, Antichrist, right? They're foreshadows of that. And um, 
I just, in studying this and in Shane's preaching in Romans, I've just, this foreshadowing and these deposits and such, the way that God teaches us that is so neat, right? And I was so blessed a couple of weeks ago, we, I can't even remember which sermon it was in, in, in Romans 8, where Shane was talking about the deposit of the Holy Spirit that we have now. You know, isn't that neat? And so just think, you know, kind of the opposite that these, you, we've got that now, but then the same way these guys are coming. They're, they're a foreshadow of the wickedness rather than the blessedness. And I just Googled a couple of them. Listen to these. These are a couple I came up with. Um, some modern day examples. Alan John Miller lives in, lives in Queensland, Australia with his partner, Mary Luck. Not quite sure what that means. I guess a different last name, so they're not married, I guess. Miller claims that he remembers details from his former life as Jesus. And Luck says that she is the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene. Both state that they were married in their previous life and had a daughter together. They don't say who that was, but... And uh, so John Miller says, I have very clear memories of the crucifixion, but it wasn't as harrowing for me as it was for the others like Mary who were present. Really? Isn't that... That's just bizarre. The two run the organization called Divine Truth and have appeared on local and international television programs to speak of Miller's claims of being the Messiah. Crowds gather to hear them speak and... He has seminars, and some followers across Australia have given up all their possessions and left their families to be closer to him. Another one, uh, known as Vesarian Sergei Torop, began proclaiming himself as Jesus reincarnated after he was fired as a traffic officer in Russia in 1990. You know, my question would be, so... There's multiple messiahs, I guess. You know, if they got this guy is, and you are too... But anyway, uh, this guy, Torah, uh, he went on to found the Church of the Last Testament, which combines various religions. Okay, this guy is, uh, what do you call that when you bring them all together? Ecumenical, yeah. Uh, I think it was a book years ago called, actually that's happening in Christianity, right, to some degree. Uh, But he brings in Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. Uh, He has over 5,000 followers some of which gathered to listen to the self-proclaimed Messiah speak. Uh, His words are collected in books which span ten volumes. Um, He's known as Jesus of Siberia. Surprised he's got any followers in Siberia. I mean, it's too cold to get out and follow somebody there. But, um, you know, so anyway, then there's, this is one of his quotes. He says, I'm not God, and it is a mistake to see Jesus as God. But I am the living word of God the Father. Everything that God wants to say, he says through me. This is what that guy says. All right, then uh, there's another one. Um, Christothes. He began claiming uh, since 1979 that he is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from him. My mission is to prepare the elect, the survivors of the inevitable nuclear bomb that will culminate in the end of this chaotic world for the formation of the new earthly society which will strive to fulfill the Creator's will. So these guys are out there, right? And tragically, those who are deceived in the last days by these false Christs, they will sincerely regard themselves as genuine believers, actively doing the work of Christ, they think. So 
Just like many people today, though, right? People that think that they're actively doing the work of Christ. Do all of y'all think you are? I think I am. They think they are. What's the difference? What do you think? How do we know we're right and they're wrong? Tore up could be Jesus instead of the one we're studying. What makes us have it right? You ever think like that? You ever think, what if I got it wrong? What if the Jews are right? What do you think? Huh? We've got this. Well, they got their books. We got the Bible and the Holy Spirit. There you go. The combination of those two, I think, is what does it. You know, and you know, all I have to look at is my own life. I mean, I've got the Bible and the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? I've got me, and I was saved later in life at thirty-eight. And I have tried so many weirdo things in my life, and of course, none of them produced anything. I, who was out there looking for God, and it's all of a sudden, zap, okay, I got it. Were any of y'all? No. All of these are. If you study every other religion and every false Christ that there is, these are people that are looking and seeking, right? And I know what happened to me. I, you know, here's the easiest way for me to explain it is, you know, the parable, or, or when Jesus, no, it wasn't a parable. Jesus actually healed a blind man, right? And some of his friends said, well, I thought you were blind. This is paraphrasing, you know, and, and he says, yeah, I was. And they say, what happened? You remember what he says? I don't know. I was blind and now I see. That's kind of how it works, isn't it? And in reality, God's the one that does this. What I'm getting at is the sovereignty of God in salvation among his children. And then we have the scriptures, which then line up with the spirit that he has placed within us, that deposit to make it all click for us, right? And so, I mean, we're talking about false prophets claiming to be Christ in, in you know, throughout history. They, they were there back then, and they're, there, they're here today. But then there's this whole other group, right, which are false teachers, you know, like Name a few, right? What about them? What makes the difference between them and us? They're using the Bible. They claim to have the Holy Spirit. What do you think? What's the divide there? The true biblical worldview is the only one that really lines up with reality. Okay. And even the false teachers, their teaching doesn't line up with reality. Okay. And by reality... Okay, there you go. I think that's it. We tend to get, they, they're really tunnel focused when you look at it. You know, they've got tunnel vision and they don't see the whole picture. Doesn't the whole biblical worldview give you hope? Why? Because we know our God, our Savior that came into our lives and saved us is the one that wrote it all. So when, when you see all this happening, it's not a, I mean, certainly the, the humanness of us, we, we have emotions, and I'm, I'm not saying we, you know, walk around cold and, and, you know, we really, you know, you know how we really should be walking around? With absolute broken hearts over the souls of those that are perishing. Because they are around us all over the place. And, and if he tarries, I mean, as long as he's tarrying, as we'll see as this chapter unfolds, then, the more opportunities we have to be spreading that gospel 
Um, I'm just, you know, my, my own life included, just that has to change, right? We, as a body of Christ, have got to realize that every person we see that's not a believer, they are on their way to eternal destruction. And, you know, here we are. So, all these guys, false teachers, you know, we know we've got the truth because we've got the deposit of the Holy Spirit that perfectly lines up with the Word of God, right? And that, that's what makes the difference in our lives. So on top of being deceived uh, by these false prophets, these uh, really antichrists, there there also be a um, worldwide devastation resulting from human conflicts and natural disasters. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So it's natural for us to think that the end has arrived when we personally experience any of these things, right? I mean, whoa, you know, the Bible says it. There it is. Look. But no, we got to think, you know, this is yet but the beginning. And the beginning has been happening since Christ's time, right? Wars have always been with us, haven't they? Uh, William Durant, an American writer and historian that died in 1981, uh, is best known for his 11 volumes called The Story of Civilization. He wrote this, quote, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war, right? Only 268 years of recorded history have seen no war. Now, I started thinking, you know, and he died, like I said, in 81. We'll take our generation, right, from Vietnam forward, have we had any time with no war? There might have been from, what, 73 maybe to the first Gulf War maybe? Or no, where was Grenada was in there somewhere? Right, yeah, Grenada was there. So, uh, you know, so maybe we had six or eight years, you know, and then Grenada in 83, then maybe nothing until, well, then you had the, I'm talking about that's just America, though, so I'm, you know, Think of the others. You know, you had the, um, well, it just left me. I had it and it's gone. Um, oh, the communist revolt, you know. that. So 200 and, what did I say, 68 years have seen no war. That's been going on, right? But when, when we hear of all this going on today, well, we think the end is near. Now, certainly, well, maybe that's not even the right step. <laughs> I was going to say, certainly, well, we know historically it is unfolding, so we are nearer than we were there because he's not here yet as time goes by. But, you know, I mean, you ought to, just for maybe to satisfy curiosity, do a little uh, uh, study on um, Iran. You know, the, uh, I'm telling you, boy, oh boy, that's hair-raising stuff when we start looking at, you know, the, the Muslim thing and, you know, the reformers thought the Catholics were going to be the ones, inter, you know, bringing the Antichrist in because of their worldwide. But, uh, you know, the Muslims are, they're lining up even better from my perspective, you know, to 
to be the ones that this this all ushers in from. But we tend to think the engineer, you know, you had the, the I'm sure the uh, the Jews felt that way in Germany in the 40s. Um, you know, well, it's easy to regard natural disasters the same way, right? But during the years of Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple, before A.D. 70 even rolled around for the destruction of that, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed Laodicea, Colossae, and Herapolis. That, that, those three cities were called the Tri-City Area. They formed a kind of a crude triangle shape amongst them. You know, that, that was in between 60 and 62, uh, probably right after Paul wrote the letters to those areas. So those were completely devastated. You know, there was a famine in Rome itself. Uh, but none of these meant the end of all things. You know what? If we went home this afternoon and found out an earthquake had knocked California into the ocean, we would all think, oh, it's coming. No, that's just the beginning, right? Have any of y'all been through a natural disaster of any type? Yeah, what have you been through? Uh, well, we All right. Were you thinking this is the end? No. no? <laughs> you thinking, help me, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we went through a tornado. Uh, anybody else? Last night we watched uh, 2020. Did anybody see that? It was a two-hour special on that tornado in uh, Oklahoma in 2013. You know, and... Uh, Boy, oh boy, you know, you talk about devastation. That little thing we had here that tore my house up, well, that wasn't anything compared to what these folks went through. Uh, you know, guys driving down the road, there go two cars off the bridge. But anyway, so we can't think that just because we're seeing this that uh, that Jesus is right around the corner, right? We're not to be deceived by any of these things. He tells us these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And uh, we know throughout Scripture that that term is used a lot to talk about, uh, you know, the coming of disaster. But So now having warned his disciples about what would be happening in the world, he, he informs them about what, happened to, what would happen to them personally. So you got the big world picture and then these 12 guys. And he tells them in verse 9, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now he'd already told them about the disasters that they would face for being I'm sorry, the distress that they would face for being faithful to him. In Matthew 10, verse 16, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, if Shane told us that this morning from the pulpit, what would you expect? You know, if I said, you know, guess what, JT? I'm sending you out to to wolves. You know, we, I mean, that's you, a, a, a lamb has no defense against a pack of wolves, does he? None. That's why he needs what? A shepherd, right? So, and then he says, you got to be wise, verse 16. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. 
and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So warnings like this must have been an integral part of his teaching for the 12. Why, why do you think so? Why would Jesus, I mean, we've got two instances here where he's telling them, and there, there are many more. Why was that such an integral part of his teaching to them? Yeah. That's right. You know, that's why he's teaching us this stuff here, so we can be prepared for it, right? Are we immune to what was going on, what Jesus was teaching them? No, we're not. Now, you know, I really struggle with this, though, right? Because, I mean, have you ever been threatened for the gospel? Really threatened. I mean, baseball bat, cocked bat, ready to take your head off. You know, I haven't. You know, um, anybody? You know, so does that cause us then, this is a question I don't have the answer to, so somebody answer it. Does that cause us then to become complacent in our witness? No. No? Because we're seeing a lot of um, handwriting on the wall, how our society is gradually turning away Mm -hmm. from the Lord. And I think that there will be times in the future when we will be threatened. Sure. And we just need to be prepared for that and have the right response, not to be like Peter and deny Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's being set up, right? These, again, are warnings for us as well. So he, he tells them that they're going to be mistreated and attacked by both Jews and Gentiles and. You know, the councils meet in the synagogues where where cases were tried by local judges, and many times the punishments took the form of beatings and imprisonments. Acts chapter 5, it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So everybody rose up against the apostles, right, and throw them into jail. Acts 8, of course, we know the killing of Stephen. Uh, Acts 8, 1, and, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the term back in uh, verse 9, delivers you over, is that's in, what that really means is to be arrested and take custody of. And this is over and over and over. I'm, I, I won't say all the overs for the verses I've got written there in the book of Acts where we see that happening. And not only would their opposition come from the Jews, But Jesus says that it's also going to come from the Gentile authorities because it says you will stand before governors and kings. And, you know, of course, throughout history, even up to today, many believers follow the footsteps of the disciples of being persecuted um, for Christ's sake. And Paul wrote uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? So where are we on that spectrum, right? He says 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So maybe it hasn't happened to us yet, you know. And there there are other ways of being persecuted other than just being flogged and thrown into jail. Um, what would be some other ways? Well, think about the people who went and sell, like, the wedding cake to the gay couple. And, sure. And then all that stuff is gone. So, they, the, you know, government's going to them or whatever. I don't know the latest on it. Sure. But they've run out of business. I mean, basically, Yeah, you know, sure, absolutely. Stuff, I mean, like, being run out of business or... Like if you witness to somebody at work, mm-hmm. you have the potential of being called in to, you know, your boss and say, what are you doing? Yeah, there's a guy sitting back there that can testify to that. Well, I got, I got called in too. Did you? So, yeah. yeah, so but the way to do it is to go to lunch with them and then do it. So that's what I learned. Yeah. <laughs> that way you're yeah. off the premises. Yeah, it's, um, that's, that's certainly one. And, and I mean, what country are we talking about? <laughs> really? You know, I mean, Wow. Um, yes, sir. You know, another example, this happened back in November in Norway. There was a Romanian pastor that had moved to Norway and married a Norwegian woman. And they had four kids, some in high school, some in elementary school. And the principal of the high school went to their home and physically removed the kids and put them into foster homes because they were uh, being abused by the parents because they were being taught the word at home. Now, I've been following this story for a few months, and I don't think the kids have ever been returned to the home. The court actually sided with the principal. You know, there are, there's a group of atheists that look at um, Christianity as a form of child abuse. It's becoming a very um, popular movement, and I think this is an example of a guy. He was, he was just teaching his kids the yeah. Bible at home. Yeah, and that, they that, out about it yeah, and that would be tough. <laughs> Norway, and they have a cross on their flag, yeah. right? I mean... What's that all about? Yeah. That's good. And, you know, you know, it's coming. We know that. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. You know, the first, the pains are, you know, it's, they're getting worse and worse as time goes by. Tim, did you have something? Yeah. <clears throat> Some guys, you know, this, at age 52, I was 34 years in the Air Force. Um, because I talked about Jesus in my change of command speech, I got a lot of reprimand. And then it ended up, the deciding factor in, in, uh, in retiring. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a, we see it. We see it in whatever uh, family research council, if this is probably that, or some type of um, non-cost stars. If you watch on Fox News, you see that it's happening. And then, you know, when you get in that situation, when you're persecuted, it, it, it was a small P in my opinion. I mean, nobody cut my head off or So, you know, we know that according to Scripture, and we all firmly believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, right, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Therefore, when Paul writes that, of course, that's just a couple 
interestingly, four verses before the one I just said. You know, those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So I guess we'll stop there. Um, Yeah, we'll stop there. We'll pick up on persecution again next week there. So, all right. Well, thanks for your time. Do we have?